Titled Calling Dr. Gang Green, you know who's going to be on Monster Kid Radio this week? Dr. Gang Green himself, aka Larry Underwood, is joining me, Derek M. Cook, here on the podcast to talk about a film from the 1970s. Going a little outside the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse, it's getting more and more flexible as time goes on, but that kind of happens when you hit 486 episodes of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the conversation that Larry and I are about to have about the movie The Vault of Horror. As I tell him during the conversation, he's my anthology guy. For whatever reason, Larry loves anthologies. Okay, I say for whatever reason, but I know the reason why, and you're going to find out the reason why too, because he says what the reason why is during our conversation. We're also going to talk about a brand new movie project that he's involved with, the premiere, what it's called, what it's about, and how you can see it. I can't wait for you guys and gals to see this film, but I don't want to spoil what we're going to talk about here in a little bit. You're just going to have to sit tight and hang out and wait for Larry to join the show. Now, before that, of course, we have Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. And of course, he's going to talk about The Vault of Horror. Now, in addition to this, I have another interview, a second piece with another old friend of Monster Kid Radio. If you have been on social media since, I don't know, yesterday or the day before, and you follow a number of the personalities that appear here on the show, well, then you will have seen that Stephen D. Sullivan has released, he's done a big cover reveal of his new book, and it's coming soon. I tell you the name of the book right now, but off the top of my head, I know I'm going to screw it up, just like I screw it up with the conversation that I have with Steve. But he corrects me, and he tells you guys and gals where it can be found and when it is coming. So sit tight for that. We also have some listener feedback, so we're going to get to all of that so right now. its way back to terrorize the living. The terrifying horror of a dreaded man called Dr. Terror who, with his deck of mystic cards, could foretell destiny. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. The Vault of Horror is about to open. 
You will learn its terrifying secrets if you dare. Death lives in Tales from the Crypt from Cinerama Releasing. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Some material may be unsuitable for pre-teenagers. Well, you're in the feedback section of the show where you can send in your thoughts on this episode or any other episode of Monster Kid Radio or just talk monsters with somebody who's going to listen. That's me. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Anyway, you can email me anytime at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail by calling our voicemail number, which is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. We have some voicemails. That tells me the voicemail number still works. Yes! Hi, Derek. This is Reaver Clark. I just finished listening to your, uh, or almost to the end of your Flesh Eaters episode. It was fantastic. I saw this in a drive-in, actually, in 1964-1965, uh, paired with, I believe it was Time Travelers. Anyway, my dad took me to see it. Um, one thing, I might have missed it, but one thing I didn't hear about was how they went through every print and used pinpricks, actually pricked in the film, to depict the, uh, the flesh eaters. They went through every print, and those little dots, those are actual holes in the film. And I think that's what the... Uh, the new process was. Anyway, Famous Monsters did cover it back then. It might have been in a later issue than the one Kenny was talking about. But uh, that was fascinating to me as a kid. And what sticks with me is that guy on the raft and uh, those little pinpricks in the print. I actually saw one of those prints. And it's amazing when the projector's light actually comes through the film onto the screen. I don't know if it comes across on the DVD or Blu-ray, but uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Anyway, thanks for a great episode. Bye. Reber is the man. He is the composer of the film, The House of the Gorgon, and a number of other amazing projects. You can find out more about him over at ReberClark.com. That's R-E-B-E-R Clark.com. Or look him up on Bandcamp, especially on Bandcamp, because Bandcamp does this thing. The first Friday of every month, they waive their fees. So anytime you buy anything from any musician, including the musicians that you hear on this podcast, all the money goes straight into their pocket, which definitely helps out all the artists who contribute to Monster Kid Radio during the Apocalypse when they can't go out and get a gig anywhere else. You're helping them out by supporting them on Bandcamp. I'll make sure there's a link to the Bandcamp page in the show notes of this episode so you can go and support Reber to comment on what he had to say. You know what? We didn't talk about that, I don't think. Uh, David and I did not talk about the sparkly bits, the sparkly effects that you see on screen. I think we talked about how the water does sparkle, but we didn't really talk about how that was accomplished. And I assumed that somebody went into the negative and just kind of poked holes in the negative before it was duplicated. But it sounds like what you're saying is that they took it a step further. They actually perforated the film itself so that when it went through the projector the light went all whoa that's a really <laughs> wow that seems like a lot of work for a low budget film but man i bet that looked awesome the way it looks on dvd uh, on you know home media it looks like like i said somebody just went through and poked holes in the film negative before it was developed or maybe even after it was developed but before it was duplicated 
it still looks cool. And you're right, the dude on the raft. Oh, man. <laughs> That's something else. Thanks for calling in, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, listeners, Reber is going to be involved in a teeny tiny way in something that I've got cooking for October. So stay tuned for that. Hey, Derek. Steve Sullivan calling in on your last couple of shows. Really, really love these last two shows. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman with Ricardo Delgado was terrific. Of course, it's one of my favorite movies. It's just a, a great film. You guys didn't mention that there is a YouTube video with someone rereading the Bela Lugosi parts that were cut out from the script. Now, I haven't read the script. I do have it. Uh, but it sure, certainly seemed authentic to me. It was really good, and he actually even kind of put them in, te- in context with the movie with some stills and stuff. And for me, it proved that it really could have gone with the way it was written, and it would have worked, and it would have been brilliant. And I hope that someday they will actually find that footage for Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. The Flesh Eaters is one of my favorite kind of B-movies, I always think of it as being like a really good Roger Corman movie, though. Corman didn't have any anything to do with it. I know one of our friends was like, I was really disappointed you guys were selling this so hard. I love the Flesh Eaters. But it is not, you know, it's not the haunting <laughs> or something like that. It's just the Flesh Eaters. It's like a great Corman movie, not like the best horror movie you've ever seen in your life. So people should be aware of that. But having said that, like I said, I love it. It's kind of a... Uh, leaning into the 60s exploitation flick and got some cool stuff in it and, and some great performances. So hopefully people will enjoy that. It was great to hear David Annandale. I can't wait for you to have both of those guys back on the show. They were awesome. And uh, just in case people don't know, Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is coming out August 30th, and we're going to do a cover release this week, and then you guys can order it. Uh, do a pre, pre-order. Awesome. Catch you soon. Steve Sullivan. Signing off. I'm going to address this in reverse order. In case people don't know, Steve, you know what episode you're on right now, right? You and I are going to talk about the book release later in this episode. Okay, (laughs) The Flesh Eaters. You're right. You know, it is a low-budget affair. It's definitely a drive-in picture. Is it Corman-esque? I suppose in some ways. But you know what? The more I think about The Flesh Eaters, the more taken I am by that film. Reber talked about it in that last voicemail I just played. And man, I want to know even more about the production of this movie. It's awesome. It really is. Now, does it compare to Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman? Well, what compares to Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman? That movie is top Notch. Now, Steve mentioned this YouTube video where somebody's actually reading Lugosi's dialogue against stills from the film. I don't know if the link that I found is the same link that he's referring to, but it's over at the Skeleton Crew Show's YouTube channel. And that's all combined. That's all one word. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. But if you look up Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman over at the Skeleton Crew Show's YouTube channel, you'll find this 13-minute long video where somebody is doing a Lugosi accent, or at least trying to, reading the lines that were supposedly cut from the film. I would love for this footage to be found, although I don't really have a lot of high hopes for this footage. But in the meantime, we've got this YouTube video. Hop on over there, leave him a comment, and tell him that you heard about that here on Monster Kid Radio. Maybe that'll help drive some of their viewers over to our podcast. And I say our podcast because it really is our podcast 
show, which is why I'm always encouraging you to write in or call in about anything that we talk about here on any episode of Monster Kid Radio. Again, our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 4795MKR. Thanks for calling in, guys. I really appreciate it. It's a new height in fright. What of animals to do with this? The man's jugular vein was bitten, clean through. Never before such diabolic evil as the skull. I found in the morning that the skull had been removed. But who removed it? Those who use its power. Invisible beings. Spirits from a strange, evil world. The moving skull spreads its shrieking terror everywhere. Casting its hypnotic trance over all who fall under its hideous shadow. killer at its evil command. Never before such blood-curdling horror as the skull. Terror waits for you in every room in the house that dripped blood. A madman lurking on the staircase. A severed head in the closet. Coffins in the cellar. Vampires, vixens, and victims. You'll find them all in The House That Dripped Blood. Only the mind of the man who gave you Psycho could give you The House That Dripped Blood. In color from the Cinerama Releasing Corporation. Rated GP. Hello there, Monster Kid Radio heads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week's movie, The Vault of Horror, was featured in issue 104 from January of 1974. It was a four-page article with four photos. It was obvious that it was written after the film's release based on this introduction. If you are any kind of film monster fan at all, you will already have seen the five frightening Tomb of Terror tales comprising the fiendishly funny film known as The Vault of Horror. So in this feature, we'll take you behind the scenes for interviews with the stars and the producers. Let's take a look at what they had to say. Until quite recently, co-producer Milton Sobotsky explains, very few self-respecting actors would be, if you will pardon the expression, caught dead in horror films. But today, some of the finest actors and actresses in the world are delighted to be asked. Terry Thomas talks. The Neat Job, which is the name of my segment with Glennis Johns, is a highly sophisticated tongue-in-cheek treatment of a tale that might have been penned by Edgar Allan Poe had he been alive today, or even yesterday. Kurt Jurgens, who played the great rocket pioneer Von Braun in I Aim at the Stars, says, It was my first horror film, and I must say I was thrilled when I read the script. 
Previously, there was nothing in between the usual monster film and the kind of psychological thriller that Hitchcock would direct. Michael Craig, who stars in the Bargain and Death episode, says, My youngest son is 11, and he is wedded to horror. In fact, one of the reasons I act in horror films is because it gives me enormous prestige with my family. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. There's just something special about an anthology film, especially from the 70s. There's just something magical about them. They're just so much fun to watch. I could watch them all day, and I have a feeling that this week's guest probably has at one point or another in his life. It's Larry Underwood, a.k.a. Dr. Gangrene. How you doing, man? I am doing great. How are you, my friend? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I mean, I'm doing a lot better than the five characters we're about to talk about. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I'm doing all right. This was an interesting film, and I want to talk about it. I want to talk about anthology films in general, but... You've got an anthology film coming up here soon, right? Yes, we do. It's been four years in the making or so. <laughs> About time we finished it up. Fantastic. I think you were telling me that you've got some screenings lined up for it. Yeah. So all along, the plan was to play it at drive-ins. And it just so happens that this year, that's pretty much the only game in town is the drive-ins with the Corona apocalypse and everything going on right now. So I had two different drive-in owners reach out to me and ask if it was ready yet. And so my partner Cameron and I, Cameron McCaslin, the director of the, of the film, just uh, had a discussion and said, listen, we need to finish this up. We've got to, whatever it takes, get this thing wrapped and, and get it into um, screening. So the premiere, uh, I guess the world premiere, will be at the Georgetown Drive-In in Georgetown, Indiana on October 3rd. Wow, that's coming up. Yeah. So it's going to be a triple feature. We've got two movies tentatively booked, but they didn't want me to mention them just in case something happens with the booking. We'll announce something here. Understood. Actually, I would say by the end of, by the 1st of September, probably we'll have it all nailed down and we'll be putting ads out. We should know some firm details soon. Fantastic. Now, what's the name of the movie? (laughs) We didn't say that yet, so. That might be good. It's called Tales from Parts Unknown, which was the same name of the collection of short stories that I put out back in 2013. Has it been that long? And it's Yeah, it's been that long. Um, Well, actually, it was in 2014. I wrote them in 2013. It was kind of Cameron's idea. He, He wanted to adapt one of the stories. He read it, really liked it, and wanted to adapt it. Not all of the stories come from that collection, 
think I'm going to put out a second collection, more Tales from Parts Unknown, and or maybe Tales from Parts Unknown, the movie <laughs> collection, you know, and write up the stories. But the first story is a short story that we made independent of everything else before we decided to make this movie. And then we started shooting the movie and said, well, let's include that one too. It's based on an old fairy tale, but the others are all based on my work. I've seen the wraparound and I mean, you're doing the Dr. Gangreen character. You're doing the anthology host thing, which again, it's gotta be right in your wheelhouse, man. It is. And you know, I, I just love these anthologies so much. It's one of my favorite subgenres. You know, it always has been. There's, I've thought about this a lot, what makes the anthology films so appealing to me personally. And it's, I think that in the case of the Amicus films, especially, it's that they are so closely associated with EC Comics, which were one of really pretty much, not just EC, but all horror comics, one of the first loves that I ever had as far as genre stuff goes of any type. I found horror comic books and just absolutely, that was my jam. I mean, that was 100% it. And that's what anthology films are. They're really live action horror comic books come to life. Each of the short tales is just like a little short comic book story. You've got a host a lot of times. So it's a natural that Especially the amicus ones, the ones of the 70s. It's a little short story about somebody getting their comeuppance for whatever reason. They did something and now they're being punished. I feel like a lot of times, especially with like indie filmmakers today, when they do an anthology piece, that kind of aesthetic is lost. Yeah, they don't have the history, the grounding yeah. in the in the old comics like we do. So the wraparound stories are not so important to them. It's more important just to have these multiple stories together in one piece. That's enough for them. But all the best, even the modern anthologies, the best ones like Tales from the Hood, have great wraparound stories that tie everything together. Yeah, I'd even go as far as saying like, I know this is a particular favorite creep show does it really, really well uh, having having that good wrap around with the visuals and that kind of through line what's going on with the kid and everything in his comic books. I love that. I find that the modern ones are getting even more creative with it, like trick or treat the wraparound in that one really ties everything together, but it's more creative in that the lead character himself sort of appears throughout the stories and there's pieces and parts of them. It kind of time shifts and pieces and parts of them all show up. And once you watch the whole thing, you, you go back and rewatch the second time, you pick up more of what they're doing. And there's some creativity there that I appreciate. Sure. Sure. I was going to ask you outside of like what you're doing, which is going to be probably the best anthology film ever. Uh, what are some good <laughs> okay. modern anthology films that, that, <laughs> yeah. that kind of capture that? Would you say like Trick or Treat's the most recent one that's really kind of caught that flavor? Yeah, the modern stuff, I consider modern really from about 1984 okay. in my mind. Because the 70s stuff, the amicus things, they still have a classic feel to me. But really, the gore was ramped up more. And just the feel of everything is a little more modern from 1984. So Creep Show, Tales from the Hood, Trick or Treat, A Christmas Story. That's a really fun anthology. It's, have you seen that one? I don't know if I have. And I think you've mentioned it here on the show before, too. Yeah, Bill Shatner's in it. And it's, it's pretty cool. I like Body Bags pretty well. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some fun ones. A lot of the more recent ones, like I said, they kind of forego the wraparounds without that tying that story, the thread throughout all of them. It just loses something. Right. I think there's a long tradition in history with these anthology films. Uh, it goes back to, uh, is Dead of Night the first one? Did we talk about that one? 
Yeah, yeah. There was actually, before that, there was Eerie Tales. There were two Eerie Tales. The first one was in 1919. I had no idea it went that far back. And then it was remade by the same director, like in the 30s at some point. I think it may have a different name, but it was originally called Eerie Tales. And then the second one, I believe there's a Poe story in there. I want to say there's a Black Cat adaptation in it. I actually watched that in preparation for my upcoming YouTube Edgar Allan Poe series that's coming up. I'll be shooting that in September and getting it ready for my October marathon. I didn't realize it went that far back. I mean, I knew 19, was it 45 for Dead of Night? Right. Right. Which is a fantastic movie, by the way, listeners. If you haven't seen that one, that's got a great wraparound story, too. It's really cool. It does have a great wraparound. It, it is a really great anthology. I think it's spot on. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Well, it's awesome. I, I know that you were kind of going for that vibe a little bit with the book with uh, from Parts Unknown. And knowing that you're going to be doing the movie now is like super exciting news that you're going to get a drive-in premiere. That's so cool. I can't wait. I wish I could be there, man. I I would totally be there to see that. I wish you could, too. It's going to be fun. We have a packed house for this thing. The creepy cruise in is what we always call it. They uh, typically sell every spot. The last few shows have sold out every spot. Well, last year it rained, so attendance was down just a little bit. Even with the rain, it was a good turnout. But the two years before that, they sold out every spot, two screens. On screen one, they show whatever our main features are. And on screen two, they usually have a different double or triple feature going. So it's a good time, man. I love that drive-in too. It's a really charming little drive-in, a lot of character. The owner's super nice and he can still show film. So he can show things on 35 still, uh, 16. It's pretty cool. In addition to the digital, of course. That's awesome. That's the Georgetown Drive-In. I'm looking at their Facebook page right now just to kind of see what the place looks like. And it just looks cool. I would love to hang out here and watch some movies. Well, that's happening at the beginning of October. What day did you say again it was? October 3rd. It's a Saturday. Their marquee has an old car up on top of the marquee, up above the sign. That's so pretty cool. <laughs> That's so. They cool, have man. this guy, this this uh, old man that comes with a big cast iron, hundred year old cast iron pot that he makes a big bowl of chili in every year, and he, and they make um, ribeye steak sandwiches. They grill them on a grill right there in the tent, and then inside they have all your hamburgers and all that you know normal drive-in fare too, hot dogs and all that good stuff. So that sounds like a really good time, man. This sounds like a good time. Yeah. So cool. I want to, I'm trying to think of the best way to transition from this to Vault of Horror. So I think I'm just going to say, let's talk about Vault of Horror. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Okay. Let's do it. I think it's funny. Earlier, you mentioned that even though your movie's called From Parts Unknown, none of the stories in that movie actually appear in the book From Parts Unknown, which is kind of sort of. One does. Okay. One did. One did. Okay. Yeah. One did. And then two were written new. Mm-hmm. And one was an adaptation of, an, of a classic folk legend. Is that Taylor Poe? Taylor Poe. Yeah. I find it interesting because isn't that kind of what happened with the Vault of Horror that none of these stories actually appeared in the Vault of Horror comic? <laughs> yes, that's right. There's no Vault of Horror in it. It's all Tales from the Crypt and one shock suspense stories. <laughs> They're all of the same ilk i mean they're, they're all the same publisher so right whatever we can forgive them that whatever yeah i mean it's all it's all the same but it would have been nice to have some vault of horror stories in a movie called vault of horror but yeah yeah i mean it's all written by al feldstein who i tell you what man they got you hear a, 
a lot of praises of EC Comics sung, and you hear a lot about Max Gaines, and you hear a lot about all the individual artists, and rightly so. I think, for my money, the greatest stable of artists ever collected in under one house, and I'm including Marvel, DC, I don't care. These guys could draw, man. They were some storytellers. Oh, yeah. But you don't hear much about Feldstein. And, I mean, he wrote all those stories, and he was a hell of an illustrator himself. I really dig the guy's style. It's kind of stiff. His characters are a little stiff, but I like it. It's almost like a type of intentionally skewing of the characters for artistic purpose. But anyway, I dig his, I dig his style, and the guy could write. I think we hear more about him with his association with Mad Magazine, being the editor of Mad Magazine. But yeah, I, I think when it comes to like the EC Comics and those, we always go to Bill Gaines. We, we don't talk about Feldstein enough. Mm-hmm. And I mean, without the writing, you don't have the art. I mean, I know it's a collaborative thing and, you know, you have to have the artwork for a comic book to be a, a comic book. But without the writing, you, you just got a bunch of pictures, man. That's true. I said Max, Max Gaines, didn't I? His dad earlier. Oh. Yeah, Bill, of course, Bill was the one who. Oh, did you? Who, I didn't even catch that. <laughs> yeah, I think I said Max. But yeah, no, it is it is Bill, of course, who, who uh, changed it from educational comics to EC comics. Changed the slant of it from educational to the, the horror slant once his dad died and he took over the business. But. I still find EC comics to be pretty educational. Basically don't screw around or you're going to end up dead. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> you're learning life lessons here, man. <laughs> don't be a jerk. <laughs> There's a lot of people nowadays that could use that lesson. All right. <laughs> and this year in particular well, is showing. It. Yeah. 2020, probably all of it could just be right. <laughs> right. The Vault of Horror is one that this has been a theme on the show lately. I've never seen before. All right. <laughs> I watched yes. it last night. I stayed up till 2.30 in the morning watching this thing. Uh, wow. My intention was, okay, I'm going to start it. I know it's an anthology movie, so I could probably you know take a break, go to bed, get up early enough to watch it, the rest of it. No, I was hooked. I was not wanting to stop. I loved it. I had a lot <laughs> That's of fun fantastic. With this. You know, it's hard to go wrong with Amicus and anthologies. It really is. Mm-hmm. It's hard to go wrong with anthologies with Milton Sabosky involved anyway, like the one that we did a while back that wasn't really an Amicus film at all, but, you know, the, some of the same people were there. Uh, but, yeah. but this one's straight up Amicus. You could tell. They, they, they've got a flavor, and I love it. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm glad to to know that you uh, this was not only the first time that you liked it so much. I rented this one for the first time at some point as a kid and rented it on VHS and saw it. What version were you watching? When you say what version are you talking about with the so in the first the VHS yeah. version that I watched on the first story and the second story, it's edited. For instance, on the first story, the blood drinking one there's a big black i don't know what you call it just a they they covered it up with just like this black shape so you didn't see the tap in the guy's neck and i knew that story i had read that story in comics before so when i rented that vhs and was watching i was like when it came on i was like oh wait i know this story and got super excited watching it right when it got to the payoff they had it covered up with this black shape over 
the tap. So you can't see it. I was, I was super disappointed. I mean, you knew what was going on. You could tell that they were filling the cups with blood, but yours wasn't like that, right? No, I was worried actually when I started watching. I was like, you know, I've heard that there's some edits or whatever. There wasn't in this at all. I was able to see the tap in the neck. What was the other thing they blacked out? Well, in the second one, they cut some stuff out. The hammer to the head. Really? Yeah, you don't actually see, didn't see the hammer actually in the guy's head. So, Hmm. Yeah, some of the gore was edited. Oh, I believe some of the, uh, actually the payoff in that one was shortened also, I think, if I remember right. That's too bad, because I love the payoff in that one, especially the last shot, the last part of it when it settles on. Oh, the, yeah, so good. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about, no, this version was not edited. I did get to see the tap in the neck. There didn't seem to be anything cut. So when I saw the tap in the neck, I was really excited. It's like, okay, whew, mm-hmm. it's not edited. So Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, I first saw it uh, on VHS, and then I bought the double feature DVD that they had put out of it, and it was still the edited version. And so for years, I didn't see it in its correct form until they came out with this new Blu-ray, which my editor, after I put out the collection, I got an editor I was working with for some of my short stories I was writing. And she actually, as a present, sent me this one year, and I was super excited to get the Blu-ray and and have it unedited. I love the structure of this. It's a little off format in that there's not a host character. I mean, a lot of times there'll be like a Crypt Keeper character that kind of invites everybody into the room and all that. There's none of that here. And I know that some reviews kind of come down on the movie for having a lack of that. I don't think it was necessarily needed. I thought it worked for what it was. And I love the intro. I love that we get right into it through the opening credits. Yeah, it's sleek. Yeah. Uh, at this point, they'd been doing these anthologies for a while now. You'd already had Dr. Terrors and you'd already had Asylum and and you'd already had The House That Drip Blood and Tales from the Crypt at this point. I mean, they had the formula down by this point. So there is no, it's like, let's just get into it. You know, it's, it's just... No reason to waste time. It's basically the exact same setup as Tales from the Crypt. If you watch those two back to back, you've got five strangers that get brought into a room and they are either told or relate their stories. And then at the end, the payoff's pretty much exactly the same for both of them. I would say that even goes as far back to Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, even just you have the yeah. characters, they either are told or tell a terrible story that's happened to them. And then we realized that it really did happen and the end, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it deals with death and all three. I mean, that's, yeah. those three are also three of the better amicus anthologies. Yeah, so. they are. I got excited when I saw that Denholm Elliott was in this and I know he doesn't have a huge part. I mean, I'm, I'm a kid of the eighties, man. I grew up with Indiana Jones. So I love me some Denholm Elliott. The guy had so much range and I wish he had done, he had been around longer to do more, you know, because yeah. he's just fantastic. Oh yeah, in this. for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, he's he's a lot of fun. He plays uh, an art seller. Is he a dealer? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the whole cast is top-notch in this one. Yeah, I mean, his is the name that caught my attention, but as you watch it, yeah, everybody that's in here is great. So in preparation for this, I pulled out this DVD. I talked about this the last time we we when we talked about From Beyond the Grave last year. This Amicus House of Horrors DVD that I have, this is a documentary that's about amicus and it goes through the history of amicus from the beginning all the way through the end of the studio and so i queued up the part about this film and actually the film before it uh they did asylum the year before this both great movies yeah so it was tales from the crypt asylum and then this one and the 
assistant director for both this movie and Asylum was a guy named Anthony Way. And he's on the documentary talking about it. And he's talking about the cast. He said, you know, we had some great names to do these films. And he said they all wanted to do it. It's kind of like Batman in the 60s. You know, it's kind of one of those things. Oh, nice. These these British actors knew what was going on at Amicus Studios and they wanted to be part of it. It's very cool. Nice. Well, that's good to know, too. I mean, I sometimes wonder when you see actors that are known for non-genre stuff when they appear in something like this, if they wanted to do it or they just signed a contract and they had to do it. So that's good to know that they were all on board. Yeah. I mean, they kept getting these big name folks, you know. Yeah. I mean, I I loved the cast. You know, I'm not a big Doctor Who fan, but I know who Tom Baker is, you know, so I mean, he's great in it. Very different in this from from his Who performances you know a lot of presence yeah it's a great little film like i said it starts with this opening credit sequence where these characters are just getting in an elevator and mm-hmm. that's it <laughs> but yeah. because of the music and because of the way the characters are all standing in the elevator there's just something suspenseful about it and you know they're not going to end up where they want to go you know that <laughs> elevator's taking them somewhere that they do not want to be Exactly. It went up in the sub-basement and in Death's Waiting Room. (laughs) (laughs) I love the trailer for this one. The trailer for this is great. The trailer's fantastic. Enter Death's Waiting Room, if you dare. No! No! Below the crypt lies the vault of horror. A treasure chest of the macabre filled with madness, voodoo, vampires, torture, and terror. All the things that make life worth leaving. The Vault of Horror from Cinerama Releasing. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. The Vault of Horror. It has all the things that make life worth leaving. The trailer almost sells it as something bigger than it is. It feels like it's going to be this huge... I mean, you look at the movie poster, too. It feels like it's going to be this huge production. But no. They're just all kind of hanging out in this this club, basically. They've got food and drink, and they're hanging out. I mean, there's no way to get out, which would be a little bit more concerning for me. But, you know, they've got a place to hang out and chill, so... (laughs) <laughs> the uh, trailer says, enter death's waiting room if you dare. Below the crypt lies the vault of horror, which I think is kind of apropos. Below the crypt lies the vault because this movie is just slightly below crypt, in my opinion. I love vault of horror, but I think crypt's just a little bit better. Interesting. So I think that that phrasing is very interesting in that way. And for me personally. we do get a little mention of Tales from the Crypt in this too, because at one point one of the characters was reading the novelization of Tales <laughs> from the Crypt. Very, another meta moment. Yes, very much so. Is that a real thing? Did they really put out a novelization yeah. for it? Do you have yeah. it? I don't. Okay. I, that's on my want. It's on my wish list. I, I do want that. There was a novelization for both of these, I believe. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. But for sure, I know there is one for Tales. Well, we saw it on screen, so of course it's real, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought that was fun. And they don't even hide it. 
They don't even hide it. They zoom in on it. Yeah. Oh, no, not only do they not hide it, they, they <laughs> intentionally show it. Center screen. Uh, so they get into this room and it's all laid out, food and drink. You know, uh, Wikipedia calls it a gentleman's club. I don't know if it'd go that far, but it's pretty laid back and chill. And everybody's just going to have a meal and a drink and start talking. Yeah. One of the characters, when he first gets off the elevator, says right. it looks like a club of some sort. So, yeah, I think that's a good way. I mean, there's, there's a tray of decanters full of whiskey and drinks there and they all start you know they're stuck because the doors closed behind them there's no elevator for the lift and so they can't get out so they might as well yeah make the best of it have Have a a drink drink and start talking about their nightmares (laughs) yeah and because there's five of them you know we're gonna get five stories which seem to be kind of the magic number for a lot of these anthologies i've always yeah. thought so five is the amicus formula it makes the sh- the story shorter so they flow mm-hmm. quicker now we've only got four in our anthology which i really wanted five our stories are a little bit longer it, it's just how it worked out but that seems to be the sweet spot for me yeah i, I agree i think there's something magical about five i don't know what it is but it just works and We've got five characters here, so you know we're going to get five stories about. Well, it's an amicus movie, how they died. <laughs> we, yeah, but but it's not presented that way. It's presented as if they've all had these recurring nightmares, and they start sharing with each other what these recurring nightmares are. And we've already talked a little bit about the first one with the tap being blacked out. This story is about a guy who is looking for his long lost sister. He hasn't seen her in what four years think that's right yes and when he finally tracks her down she doesn't seem overly pleased about it but you know come on in brother let's talk why do you want me why do you want to try to talk to me uh, their father has died she's been named the sole inheritor of his wealth and spoiler uh, i know we already did the spoiler warning but <laughs> he kills her <laughs> uh I, i'm yeah. assuming for the inheritance uh, it's not really explicitly stated but i'm assuming yeah. that's yeah. the reasoning Now, the town that he finds her in, though, is a little odd. People are concerned about being out at night, and that's when they come out. And at this point, like I said, brand new to the movie, had no idea we were going to go down this route at all. In fact, there's a restaurant he tries to get a meal at, but it's closing. They won't serve him because it's before dark. It's about to get dark. Sorry, we're closing up. So you you didn't really know nope. what was coming to us. Oh, that's great. I didn't know. And, any and as a matter of twists. fact, any viewers out, any listeners out there, if you haven't, I would say watch this before you listen to the the rest of this podcast because it is a great little movie. Some of these twists, they all have twists to them, of course, as is the EC formula. It's better to go in fresh. Derek can attest to that. Oh yeah, I mean, some of them are a little predictable. You kind of know what's coming, but with this one, I had no clue. Oh, that's great. What, after he kills the sister, he's back out of town in that restaurant. Oh, but before spoke. that, he he, there's a, a pre sequence with a detective that comes to his house and he kills him too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's not a good man, <laughs> which is why he's in an amicus film, I guess. <laughs> right, he's a he's a twice over murderer at this point. But that restaurant that was supposedly closing up early is still open, and well. I don't know if he's just feeling ballsy at this point or what, but he's going to go in there and get a meal. Apparently, the restaurant closes and then reopens at night for its later clientele. For a different client, he sees yeah. it reopening and he's like, oh, I was hungry. He was still hungry. He was hungry before and still hungry. Well, you know, murder and hungry business, I guess. It's hard work, man. You got to go, you know, grab a bite afterwards. So <laughs> he goes to the restaurant, which has a sign on the front of it that says, 
restaurant. <laughs> so, there's yeah. no mistaking what this is. Uh-huh. <laughs> he goes to restaurant to and get it's food. It's bustling. It's busy in there. I was surprised he found a table. Mm, some tasty appetizers are served. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a, a glass of tomato juice. Tomato juice. Oh. Yeah. His reaction to the tomato juice and the waiter's reaction to him saying, oh, tomato juice, made me think, okay, that's not really tomato juice in that glass. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm. But then he's also served with a soup that also probably isn't really something humans should be consuming. A very deep red soup that he's not, it's got a strange flavor to it. And then the waiter asks him, how would you like your clots? My what? Your clots, roasted or baked? I think that's what he said. Oh. He spits the soup out at that oh, point. God. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> Roast clots. So in preparation for this episode, I read the actual comic book stories for each of these. Oh, did you really? Okay. So this came from Tales from the Crypt, number 35. It's called Midnight Mess. The artist was Joe Orlando for this one. Oh, wow. Okay. Killer artist. The comic book... Is a little different. It doesn't have the detective at the beginning that was added. It does have him showing up and uh, meeting his sister, but the whole thing with him killing her is not in the comic. Oh. Subotsky added all that part. I love it. I think all of that adds a whole other layer of, yeah. of um, comeuppance and reason for, for him getting his comeuppance. But the waiter in the comic book also says that they serve fried scabs. Oh, God. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> he mentions the roast clots and mentions fried scabs. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Yum. <Yummy. laughs> oh, God. Yeah. He Once he realizes there's a mortal in the in the building, in both versions, the comic and movie, he, he pulls back curtains that are covering a mirror. This one in the movie, it's a wall-length mirror. And the guy sees he's the only person in the reflection, uh, only sees a reflection of himself. The rest of the room is casting no reflection. He realizes these are vampires. And not only that, but his sister is there. She shows back up as one of the vampires. Holding the switchblade that he killed her with. Yep. And then we get the, the, the scene with the tap in his, in his jugular vein, which... They hoist him up by the feet and stick a... Uh, <laughs> A beer tap in his neck and drain off cups of blood. Fresh, fresh blood. Mm. Wow. The, it is beautiful. And he's twitching and, you know. Oh, man. <laughs> it's See, they did a, the, the edited version was a still frame. And really? it was that black shape covering the tap. Oh, that's I mean, they ridiculous. They really edited it. Yeah. Oh, man, that's too bad. Because I think it looks great. The the He sells it. He sells it so much. The actor is Daniel Massey, and he sells it. And what's cool is both he and his sister in the movie are real life brother and sister. Yeah, the sister is played by sister Anna Massey, who is an actress as well. So it wasn't just like, you know, stunt casting, let's get an actress, to get a sister. They are both actor and actresses with careers of their own. And to bring them together like that, I thought it was kind of neat. I thought it was cool too. Now, their father was an actor, Raymond Massey. And uh, I was looking him up a little bit this morning. Genre folks will recognize him most from, I, I think, from he was in two episodes of night gallery oh there you go so i think they probably know him from that one was called clean kills and other trophies which is where the guy wants his son to shoot a deer 
before he can get his inheritance. And then there was another one called Rare Objects with Mickey Rooney, who plays a gangster. Oh, that one's a good episode, too. Yeah, and he's their dad's in both of those. He was also in an Alfred Hitchcock Presents movie called Roadhog, which is a cool little episode about a guy whose son got gets gored by a bull and is dying, and he has to get him to the hospital. And as he's going down the road, there's a truck blocking his path, and he can't get around it. It's pretty cool. We got to talk about some night gallery on the show at some point. Oh, love me some night gallery, oh, man. Me too, man. Me too. So that's a short little story. Uh, it's it's not very long, but it packs a punch. It's got some really cool moments in it. And like I said, I had no idea. That's great. Idea. I think some of the things and some of the background vampires look a little silly, but beyond yeah. that, it's it's a great little short piece. It works as a standalone story too. Every one of these pieces you could pull out of the anthology and just show as a short film somewhere and they would work. For sure. You know, I think this is one of the better ones in the first two, I think, are my favorites. For they start off with a bang, man. These two are great. And I I mean I like them all. Yeah. There's some things in some of the later ones, especially in Drawn and Quartered, that like, oh my yeah. But, um, which is the last piece. But yeah, this one is, I think, my favorite story of them all. I think my favorite is probably the second one. The Neat Job. <laughs> the Neat Job. This is the one that's from Shock Suspense Stories, number one. Okay. And it's pretty faithful to the comic. The main difference being that the house is a bigger, older, pre-furnished house that they buy and move into after they get married. This is Terry Thomas that stars in this one, who is just absolutely fantastic in, in everything he does. I love the guy. If you haven't seen Terry Thomas in anything, I mean, you, you've seen him. Even if you don't know his name, you've seen him. He's it's got, got a, that voice. The voice and the <laughs> teeth. <laughs> yeah, with the gap in the middle. Yep, yeah. Yep. He's great. And Glennis Johns is his wife. So they're newlyweds, and he was an older bachelor, married this younger girl who not that much doesn't look that much younger, but younger. Talk about henpecked. She's the henpecked one. He is obsessive as far as cleaning and cleanliness and everything in a place and a place for everything. Rides her incessantly over rearranging the furniture or putting the records back up after you listen to them or whatever. She can't do anything right. How dare she try to make their home their home? That'll teach her. He's a very set way of doing things. And he even tells a buddy of his at the very beginning of the story that, you know, he's looking for somebody to kind of take care of him as he gets older, that sort of thing. There's sure. this, this trophy wife kind of approach. And he's just not a very nice man. But I guess none of them are really. So. Right. Well, one day when he's out, uh, she, this comedy of events, this string of events that happens, she just messes the whole place up. Right. It starts with a drink on the table that leaves a ring. So she tries to get some polish remover to clean it and it spills on the floor. And then she knocks a, a, a painting off the wall and <laughs> winds up going to the basement into his immaculate tool collection down there to to get a hammer and a nail and winds up destroying it, knocking one thing off the wall. She's panicking and oh, she scratches his records, everything during the course of all of this. And at the very end, he shows up and just loses it. Can't you do anything right? Can't you do anything neatly? <laughs> she happens to be holding <laughs> a hammer in her hand as he does this. And she just finally just completely flips out, screams and embeds that hammer right in his head. And it's a good effect. I was a little surprised. Now I know that we just saw a bunch of 
vampires draining a dude and drinking blood. I know we just saw that. But to me, that's still like in the supernatural kind of vein of things. In the neat job, you've got one human putting a hammer in another human's head. And that really kind of takes it to another level for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's really brutal. It's the sound effect that oh, it's yes, and then the payoff for the entire story makes me grin like a freaking idiot every time I watch uh, it. It's so beautiful, man. So yeah, she does do everything neatly. She gets everything put away nice and neatly, including several pieces of him. <laughs> the big switch in the comic book between it and this story is that in the comic book she's telling this story to a pair of detectives oh really it starts and ends with her telling the, this story they said well, so why'd you do this and she she tells them i like this a lot better just show us don't tell us just show yeah it. yeah and her laughing maniacally everything in its place and a place for everything and that just oh, man, she's completely sells it as she has do we, we want to spoil this right yeah we're spoiling them all man okay all right we're spoiling everything she has cut him up put him in individual jars and labeled each of them put him on shelves i love the odds and ends yeah i was gonna say that's the one i remember the most <laughs> was the odds and ends but we do end the last star we see are his his teeth and teeth. It's, it's like it's like a pair of dentures sitting there in the jar it's like the upper part of his jaw and you see the gap in his tooth there and it's like yeah that's that's it that's a nice little bit of detail that i loved this whole movie has a real sense of humor to it a dark oh, yeah. black sense of humor to it they were absolutely trying to make this a dark comedy as well as a horror movie but they were having fun with this one and it completely shows oh you can totally tell you totally tell. I think part of the reason why the third piece for me I consider the weakest is because it feels so much less fun. Mm -hmm. It feels like they're trying to be really sincere with it. And it's like, that's not really the vibe I'm getting from the other ones. Yeah, no, I agree. It's my least favorite. Uh, going back to number two, though, real yeah, yeah. quick. I think that one would have fit perfectly into Asylum. Oh, sure. With her going mad at the end, I think you could make that one of the stories of the inmates in the asylum and it would really have fit perfect. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Totally but I'm glad agree. it's in here because that one, two punch of these first two stories, <laughs> it can't be beat. I think, yeah, those two, I'm with you. Those first two are my favorite. And I think before we started chatting, the first one was my favorite because, Ooh, vampires, monsters, but you're right. The second piece is so much fun. It's, it's terrible, but, <laughs> but it's fun. It is. And I love the 70s decor of their house. Oh, man. When she tries to kind of spruce it up and make it. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's all orange and browns. And I mean, dude, I could live there. That, was, that, that place is awesome. Al dente. I say that every time I make spaghetti, every single time. Al dente. And he clacks his teeth together. But then we see the pot of spaghetti oh, okay. after that, and the spaghetti is not al dente at all. Uh, but yeah, I just love that kind of, I'm going to show off how great of a cook I am. I'm going to make spaghetti. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Bachelor. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's uh, great. Oh, man. Uh, so these these guys are sitting around the table telling each other these stories, and they do start to push to hear the story from who will eventually be our final storyteller but he doesn't want to go yet he wants to hear everybody else's story first and the next story we hear is the one that like i said it, it's probably the least fun for me which is weird because it's about a magician and i like magic i like magician stuff 
Yeah. I but this, it's just played so straight. They don't really say. I guess it's India where they're where it's set. They really don't say ever. I rewatched it today. Uh, this yeah, morning. Yeah, it's kind of implied, yeah. but that's about it. But yeah, it's it's a the rope trick husband wife team going to this other country, India or wherever it's at, looking for magic acts that they can basically purchase or steal and take back to the states and and spruce up their own act with is what they're looking for. And they. Yeah very callously expose this street magician's tricks to the masses. Real jerk move. Completely. Too. That was not cool. But, you, you know, again, you had to set it up and show what bad people they were, you know? And yeah. so, the, but then he runs across the guy's daughter playing a flute and uh, there's some instrument like flute, like instrument and a, a, a rope coming up out of a, a basket with no wires, just ascending up into the, the air and um, he's like, oh, I've got to have this. How do you do this? What is it? And he can't figure it out. So he wants to purchase it for her and she won't sell it. So he asks her to come show that same trick to his wife in her hotel room and tells him that his wife is sick yeah. as a way to get her there alone so that they can kill her and take the trick for themselves. Okay. Uh, and that's exactly what happens. Uh, they, they do take the trick, and they, but they can't figure out how the trick works, right? Right. They, they mess around with the rope. They're looking in the basket. He takes out the flute that she was playing and plays the flute, and suddenly the rope starts to climb. Uh, it goes, goes up into the air. And they don't know how it's working, but it's working. Now, the wife's really not sick. That was all a ruse. She's climbing up the rope. It's like, look, look, it even holds me up. Until she gets to the ceiling. And they do this weird kind of... Like, for as graphic as some of the stuff that we see later on in the movie, I was a little surprised that this one seemed so... Tame. Yeah, it seems pretty tame. She screams, she fades out, and there's a blood spot on the ceiling. So, I like that she looks up into it, what I picture in my mind as another dimension. I think yes. you know, there's some creature in another dimension that grabs her, pulls her up there, and rips her apart in the comic book. This is based on Tales from the Crypt 33, by the way. Okay, I was going to ask you about the comic that shows anything in else. In the comic, what happens is her body is ripped apart and the individual body parts all fall out of the ceiling onto the guy. Oh, wow. That would have been pretty amazing, but maybe they couldn't get it past the sensors. Instead, they just have this red blotch that starts staining the ceiling, you know, as a blood pool. Which is a cool image, but... Yeah, it's cool, but it's not as cool as severed body parts. Maybe they didn't want to have two shorts with severed body parts. Maybe that was it. Maybe. I don't know, but it's severed limbs falling out of the <laughs> ceiling would have been pretty amazing. That would have been pretty cool. Uh, does the story in the comic end the same way with the rope than hanging the guy? Yeah, it's a little less dramatic. It it just comes straight down, grabs him by the neck, and yanks him up. It doesn't chase him around the room like it does in the story. Okay, I was getting a little bit of the, uh, I forget the name of the story in it, but in the Dr. Terra's House of Horrors, the one with the vines, I a yeah. little bit of that vibe from it. Mm -hmm. uh, the lead guy in this is played by Kurd Jorgens, and he was, uh, I have to say this for Scott Morris, will catch me on it. He was in The Spy Who Loved Me. He was a James Bond dude. He was, a, he was Carl Stromberg in that, so. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, this plays a little too straight for me. A little too, too dry. I want it to be yeah. a little bit more, not campy, but just, it's just not as fun. I get that. I totally understand that. And and it's my least favorite 
of the batch also. I mean, it's just, it's clearly the weak link. I think even when the movie ends, this one is separated from the others in a, in a interesting way too, or, or maybe not interesting way, depending on your take on it, but it is set aside. It's, it's separate from the others. But he's there, so he tells him the story, and that's that's that, pretty much. Um, the woman that they did kill, the young girl they killed to steal the trick from, she's still alive at the bazaar at the end of the story. Yeah. It's a fine story. It just doesn't have the same energy as the other ones. Yeah, I mean, there's always a weak link. And and it's probably somebody out there's favorite of the bunch. I, yeah. I would, you know, that's the thing. It's, you don't like this story, stick around. The next one's coming. You might like it better. And we've talked about that, about these anthology films. That's one of the best things about these anthology films. You don't like that yeah. story, hang out another 7 to 12 minutes, another one's going to come up. Yeah. And the next one does come up <laughs> in this one. Bargain in Death, which I found to be the most predictable of the batch, but I still really enjoyed it. Bargain in Death was from Tales from the Crypt 28. It was uh, drawn by Jack Davis. The last one was George Evans, I believe is his name. I, I don't know George Evans as much. I should look him up. But Joe Orlando did the first one. Jack Kamen did the second one. Jack Kamen is amazing. Okay. And then, of course, the great Jack Davis did this one. And it's a scheme that we've seen. I've seen this, a, a version of this story kind of at least sort of told in the Tales from the Crypt TV series where there's this scam that they're going to pull over. We're going to fake somebody's death and take their life insurance money and split it. But not everybody's on the same page. And mm-hmm. yeah, uh, let's see. The, the lead character in this is a guy named Maitland. He's played by Michael Craig. Maitland, one of those names that they use in, in uh, Amicus films. That's a, that's a common name you'll see yeah. in, in different movies. Edward Judd is also in this. And I love this guy. I love Ed Judd. Edward Judd is amazing. I wish he was in it more. I know he's practically top build in this thing. He's right up there with everybody else, but he's got like three lines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he plays Maitland's buddy, Alex, and it's the two of them that are going to kind of scam everybody. But Alex is not going to really be there for Maitland when he needs it. Well, they're both planning on double-crossing each other. Yeah. Maitland pulls a gun out and says, and after you, I'm come back, I'll have no more need for you. So they're yep. both planning on backstabbing each other. Yep. Basically, they're going to fake his death. They're giving him a drug that will make his body, his life signs drop down to the point where they're not detectable. He'll be pronounced dead. They're going to cash in on his insurance money and dig him back up from the grave, cash in his, his insurance policy. And go Split. off, yeah. And go their separate ways. But Both of them are planning on double-crossing each other. Yeah, Alex is not even planning on digging him back up. He's just going to let him just leave him to suffocate, uh, buried alive. And the other guy, like you said, pulled out the gun. But while this is all being set up, we've got a couple of medical students named Tom and Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> who really wish they had their own body to work on. They, so, <laughs> yeah, they are totally having fun with this. Because yeah. those two guys... Robin Nedwell and Jeffrey Davies, they interviewed Jeffrey on that uh, Amicus uh, House of Horrors uh, uh-huh. documentary. Uh-huh. And he, ta- he talks about it. Both of them were in a British TV series called Doctor in the House. It was a comedy. It was a movie first, and it was a TV series. So they were kind of known for being medical students in this series. And if I'm not mistaken, that's that was already known. So British audiences would have already kind of recognized these guys. It would have been an end joke that's, for them to kind of be in this anyway. That's hilarious. Yeah, so then the, the Tom and Jerry <laughs> is just kind of like, I'm sure Sabotsky thought that was funny. Oh, let's call them Tom and Jerry. <laughs> well, Tom and Jerry need another body. They they are 
lamenting that they only have so much time with the cadavers at medical school. And boy, if we had our own corpse, wouldn't it be easier? We could just do whatever we needed to. Yeah. And they, right. they happen to live in the same, I, I guess it's a lodging house. I just, they, they lodge in the same house as, uh, yeah, I think it's board they, rooms and boarding house. Yeah. I, I was trying to think, is there a special, is there a different name for it over in the UK? But yeah, yeah it's right. a boarding house uh, and Maitland's there and the, quote unquote death happens and the landlady screams and Tom and Jerry come running in to see what's going on and they give each other a knowing look as they're looking over this body. Weren't we just talking about this? <laughs> one comes in right. in like this, these disheveled pajamas. The other one looks like he's been halfway through shaving his face. He's got shaving cream and a razor in his hand, you know. <laughs> like, oh, I love it though. It's just kind of this goofy kind of vibe that runs through it. It's great. This story is told a little differently though. It's not just a straightforward, this happened and this happened and this happened. It starts with the guy in the coffin. It does. And then it kind of says, oh yes, I remember how I got there now. Yeah. The whole narrative of this one's odd anyway, because you've got basically two separate stories that intersect at the end. So they kind of introduce you to the Maitland story and then the medical student story all separately. Right. So in the comics, the same way they introduce both stories and they come together because before he takes the drug, he, he injects himself with a drug to appear dead. Uh, they show him, like we said before, reading the book. Well, first there is <laughs> on the table, there's a hardback copy of Vault of Horror. It looks like a collected uh, version of Vault of Horror. Oh, really? Yeah, that's sitting on this on the table right beside. So if you go back and watch it, when he sits in the chair right there on that table, there's a big volume of Vault of Horror, which is pretty cool. And then <laughs> they he injects himself with a drug, hides the needle and things where it won't be found, and then turns the light on, walks over, pulls a paperback off the shelf, and sits down. And they put it right up in the center of the camera. That's a Tell us from the crypt. They intentionally zoom in on it. It's pretty obvious. And, you know, it, it's them just having fun, I think. Absolutely. Very meta. It's it's fun. So Tom and Jerry are out in the graveyard with the caretaker who they've made arrangements with. They're going to pay him off to dig up this fresh body so they can take the body back to their room and practice medical stuff. Uh, as they're doing this, once or twice we kind of get Alex's point of view where he's talking about, well, your old buddy Alex isn't going to be there to dig you up now, is he? As he's starting to drive out of town and he drives, he's heading towards the cemetery, but he's eventually going to drive past the cemetery. Maitland is suffocating in the coffin and is waiting for Alex to show up. Fortunately, the caretaker gets to him before he suffocates. And I love when they open up the casket, when they open up the coffin, because <laughs> he takes that <gasps> as he shoots up and freaks out Tom and Jerry. <laughs> So, yeah, so those guys, they tell a great story on that documentary. So yeah. he said that the, when they shot that, okay, so they did the exterior scenes at a real graveyard, but that digging scene was actually on a set. He said they he walked in, and it was amazing. They had recreated that set perfectly, and I, I couldn't tell it was a set. I looked like they were. Yeah, no, I didn't set. either. Uh, he said, but when they shot that scene, they had in the hole in the ground a big electric fan inside of a box so that when they get scared and go, Oh, their hair actually stands on end. They turn oh, the electric nice. fan on and make their hair stand on end and they go oh, and <laughs> run off. Oh, that's brilliant. I'm sure I noticed that, but it was just kind of subliminally. I, I'm going to have to go back and rewatch that. I now. am too. I've, after seeing the documentary, it's more it's like, okay, wait a minute. I want to go back and watch this thing yeah. again for that. Yeah, it's amazing. It's so silly that it's just 
awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's like, you know, George Romero switching up the colors in Creepshow to kind of illustrate that it's a comic book versus, yeah, I mean, I love it. I yeah. love those little touches. Yeah. I love those little touches so much. Well, Tom and Jerry are scared now, and they go running out, and they run across, in, into the street. And, hey, there's Alex coming. And Alex uh, swerves to try to avoid them and hits a tree, and the car blows up. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Dude, uh, when Tom and Jerry do go back into the cemetery, when they've, they've kind of gotten their wits about them, the caretaker's like, okay, the body's ready. Sorry about the head. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, um, the caretaker made sure they had a body, and yeah, they do see a, see a close up of the head. Uh, is it a crowbar that was used on him? Yeah, and I think I can't ever decide whether he was scared himself and just did it, or if he did it intentionally to make sure that he got paid. Well, they paid me for a corpse. <laughs> I'm going to give him a corpse. Right. Either way, yeah, he bashed the dude's head. <laughs> So even though we had kind of a down moment with this trick will get you or kill you, bargain in death starts to come back up for me. And, and I did enjoy this one. Yeah. Oh, lot. yeah. It's great. It's great. It's fun. Oh, yeah. It does have that kind of lightheartedness with Tom and Jerry, especially. Right. I think if, if we didn't have Tom and Jerry elements, it'd be kind of a, a f- more flat story. But Tom and Jerry really kind of elevate this whole thing. Yeah. I mean, me. you could have told the story would somehow, I think, without them. There's a way. But the intersecting stories, it's very... Clever. The whole thing is very clever. Well, finally, the guy who looks like he's some sort of hippie bohemian artist tells his story. And in fact, he is an artist. He's a painter played by Tom Baker. Yes. And the story is called Drawn and Quartered. I know I said the first two are my favorite, but I also really like this story, too. Mm, Yeah. It's that EC tradition of of dabbling in voodoo, going back to Dr. Terror's House of Horrors with the, the voodoo story in that one that's kind of similar in a way. Yeah, and you know, I love me a good voodoo story. And I really like this one. Tom Baker is this this artist who's living in Haiti in I don't want to say squalor, but clearly he doesn't have a lot of money. Yeah. And and he's been told by his art dealer and the critics that his paintings aren't that good. He still does it because he loves it, but he's not making a lot of money off of this. And clearly his artwork's not selling. And until an old friend of his tracks him down and shows up and mentions offhandedly that uh, by the way your stuff's getting sold for pretty top dollar in the city. Right, which is, of course, a surprise to him. So he decides angrily that he's going to get revenge and goes to see the local voodoo witch doctor, as you do. Well, yeah, I mean, when I want to take revenge on somebody, <laughs> that's the first thing I do. I pull out my yellow pages. I go to the V section and look up voodoo. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, man. So he goes there and... It's it's totally done up. You've got the drums. You've got the guy with the makeup on sitting cross-legged in a hut. You know, it's all, all the all the bells and whistles of a pseudo voodoo ceremony or whatever. And there's this pot of boiling gunk in the middle of the hut. And when what's this character's name? Moore, the artist, shows up and says he wants to get revenge. He's told that he has to put his hand, his painting hand in that boiling pot of water. Kind of implying that he has to make a sacrifice. If he really wants revenge, he has to do this thing to show he's serious and give part of himself up. He doesn't want to do it, but eventually does decide to do it, and his hand's fine. Exactly. I love the creativity in this story. Uh, oh, yeah. Because it's, it's a pretty neat power that he gains, the power to whatever he draws or or um, illustrates, paints, whatever, can 
come to life or basically like he, he draws a, a flower vase and then crumples it up and throws it away. Well, the vase falls off the table and cracks. Right. So in lieu of getting a voodoo doll, that's what he ends up getting the power to do is with his painting hand. If he paints something or makes something happen in a painting or an artwork, that's what happens. Uh, like you said, the flower vase, he puts a piece of bread on the floor. He draws it, erases a corner of it, and then a rat comes out and eats part of it. It's really interesting. I like it a lot. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Now, this, again, is from one of the Tales from the Crypt comics. This comes from number 26. Uh, once again, another Jack Davis-drawn story written, of course, by Al Feldstein. In both versions, he has drawn a self-portrait. And that's that's kind of the only logic flaw in this. It's like, well, if you know whatever you're going to draw or paint has this you know, ability to be destroyed, why would you do a self-portrait? Well, in the comic, he's already done the self-portrait, and he's worried that maybe it's going to be, since it's something he created, and he goes over and scratches it, and then he falls down and scratches his face on a, on a table. So it's, I guess, everything he's ever drawn, maybe, becomes that way, which w- would make more sense. Sure. And in this, he has already started the self-portrait, too. But then he, for some reason, even after finding out that he has this ability, goes over and finishes his painting. Dude. That's not a good idea. <laughs> no, yeah, you need to stop. <laughs> uh, he does decide to go to the city to confront these people that have wronged him. And he does take his own painting with him. And when he gets to the hotel, his self-portrait, he makes sure he has a safe that he can put it in and lock it up to keep it, well, safe. Which, you know, makes sense, I guess. You want to have that with you if you're worried that it can now hurt you. Right. And you want to have it locked away. That makes sense, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, he confronts these three people and accuses them and they pretty much confirm yeah you know we're in business we buy cheap and sell high sorry buddy you know yep too bad so sad i will have my vengeance on you and immediately gets to work he's got three portraits of these people there's three of them and i love the way you know for years you looked at my artwork and said it was this or that. Well, you will never look at another piece of art again and takes this tool and gouges out the eyes of one of the portraits. Yes. And wouldn't you know it just then this guy's having a spat with his wife about not being faithful and she throws acid in his face. I, what did she, wh- where did she get that? I don't care. It's cool. Doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah it is very cool. Ah! I love it. This whole story reminds me of Vincent Price in theater of blood. Yes. It's got that vibe, you know, yeah. getting back at the critics one by one. I love it. Yeah. It's like a it's like a mini theater of blood. It, it really is. It's that I kind of come up and even right down to the, the theatricality of it. You've handled my art for years, but you will never handle another piece of art again as he cuts somebody else's hands off in the portrait. And wouldn't you know it? <laughs> the guy gets his hands chopped off. And, and yeah, <laughs> I mean, I knew it was coming. We knew it was coming. But yeah. there's, they still are able to give us a sense of suspense because the device that they're using, this big paper cutter, he uses it once, no problems, nothing happens. So you're still playing with the audience, kind of stringing them along a little bit. And, you know, this is where the director, I think, comes in. Roy Ward Baker is a master. Yeah, we should have mentioned him before now. He's he's one of the two. There's two guys that are my favorite directors. I had someone ask me in an interview recently, who's my favorite director? I said, Freddie Francis, but Roy Ward Baker is probably a tie with Freddie. 
both of them did these amicus films better than anybody. Yeah, and it's it shows. And like I said, in this piece, I feel like it really shows because we're able to build that suspense, even though we know full well that paper cutter is going to come down and chop off this dude's hands. We know it's coming. Let me show you how to do this. I mean, just being a complete jerk. Jerk. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, in, in both cases, the person who had his eyes blinded, they were not being good people. I mean, he's cheating on his wife. He's being a jerk in the office. You know, and you can tell, and they both wronged the artist, of course, you know, they were ripping sure. him off too. So they do kind of get what's coming to him, but the way it's presented is, is done so well. Yeah. It, it's really yeah. neatly done. Now we don't kill Denholm Elliot right away. He's the last guy. We're going to give him a moment to kind of stew on it. When he goes into the office to meet with him again, he's like, so you probably read in the paper that, uh, those other two guys, you read what happened, right? Well, I'm going to give you two minutes and then you're going to die. <laughs> dude you didn't kill the other ones you just you know maimed them or crippled them for life you're gonna kill this guy yeah well denham elliott wants to protect himself and he pulls out a gun but that doesn't stop our artist friend because he's got a red felt tip marker <laughs> and he draws a little red circle right between denham elliott's eyes in the portrait that he's brought and unlike the other two where it could have just been coincidence in this case, we see that he has no choice. He cannot stop himself from shooting himself in the face. Yep. He tries, and he does a good job trying. He struggles. You see it. But there's really something supernatural happening here. It's not just a coincidental thing. This is real magic. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And when he tells him you've got two minutes and you're going to die, he takes off his watch and puts him on the de- puts it on the desk so he can watch the time wind down. After he shoots himself and after Denhelm kills himself, he gathers up his portrait and he leaves and he goes back to the uh, <laughs> back to his hotel room and realizes he left the watch behind. Yes. Now, at what point does he have start having trouble breathing? It's when he's running through the street to go back to his house. Yeah. yeah. To his apartment. Because the painting's in a safe and there's no oxygen in there. It's it's kind of playing off what we saw in the previous piece where the guy's running out of air in the coffin. Well, now the paint's running out of air in the safe. He's having a hard time breathing. He can barely breathe. He gets back to the place. He opens up the safe. <gasps> he can finally start breathing again. But then, yeah, he realizes he forgot the watch. So he's got to go back. Well, in order to free the painting and give it air, give it access to oxygen, he's now pulled it out of the safe and put it up on an easel. And there happens to be a skylight above it with a construction or a painter guy working above. Mm-hmm. So you know what's going to happen here. <laughs> Something bad's going to happen to this painting. And again, it's the suspense building up. You know, the guy, Morris running through the streets. He's trying to get a taxi. Can't get a taxi. Got to go get my watch. I can't be found at the scene of the crime. I got to get my stuff. And this whole time, this painter up above is working and working and he kind of kicks this bucket of something and it starts to wobble, but nothing really happens. Just cutting back and forth, back and forth. And finally, this tub of, is it like turpentine or? I think it's like turpentine. Yeah, it gets knocked down, crashes through the skylight, hits the portrait, ends up on the ground. And just when that happens, this is the worst death in this whole thing for me. (laughs) I know the tap in the neck is terrible. And, you know, there's a lot of terrible things that happen to people and these things, eyes getting gouged out, whatever, or splashed out with acid. Moore gets his head run over by a truck. (laughs) You don't see the blood. There's no gore. There's no blood. Yeah. The camera angle is such that 
like the guy's under a truck, the guy's under the truck with his head right under where the tire's going to be. The camera's like at the guy's feet. So you see the truck roll over where the head would be. Mm-hmm. It's just so effectively done. I love the painting with the turpentine oh. dripping, the way they have it dripping down. That's the last shot of this as we come I back to that. I would love to have one of those paintings. I love the artwork for each Man. of them. Yeah, that was Beautiful. really good. I Don't wonder who know did who the, the illustrate. I was thinking the same thing. There was nothing on the internet database, nothing on the internet that I could find. You know, the credits of the movie, I, I'm not sure, but I would love to know. Yeah, the way the painting looks with the turpentine kind of smearing all over his face, it's it's just... I mean, even, even though it's... Yeah. To own the one with the eyes gouged out would be cool just because <laughs> that's what they did for the movie. So, yeah, I mean, they're, yeah. Yeah, it was really neat. It's a cool little story. I really liked that one, too. I really kind of, it, it starts off strong, dips just a little bit, and then gets really strong again at the end, the whole piece, the whole movie. And after they've told their stories, the elevator light dings again, which is interesting because there's no button on their side. They can't call the elevator. So when the elevator shows up, it's like, oh, that's our way out. It's not an elevator. (laughs) They've been in the waiting room the whole time. Death's waiting room. And I love this sequence. Yeah. When they all start to walk out into the graveyard, because now it's a cemetery. It's, It's where they're supposed to be. It is so slow and resigned and almost calming in a way with the music that they've played over this sequence. And just everybody's kind of resigned to walking out and finding their grave. I mean, as they walk into the darkness, they start to fade away and it is beautifully done. Yeah. Cause you realize these guys are doomed for all eternity to tell the same. And when they tell you, they tell you to tell that same story over and over every night. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the one guy, the magician, doesn't go walking into the cemetery. He turns around and walks back because now it's no longer the, the club atmosphere. It's a crypt. So he turns around and walks, walks back to where he's going to end up. And he fades away as well. And it's beautiful. It really is. This ending, I'm getting goosebumps, man. It is incredibly cool. It is. It's very cool. And I don't think it's as good of an ending as some of the other anthologies, maybe asylum might be a little better. The rapper, the payoff for the wraparound, but it's right there. It's on par. I mean, it's it delivers. Mm-hmm. It's your standard EC delivery of, of a wraparound. It's yeah. Just a great from beginning to end the movie. Fantastic movie. I, I really enjoyed this a lot. I saw a promo still or, or something online of, some of the characters walking into the graveyard and their faces are skulls. Hmm. But it doesn't appear in the film anywhere. And I wonder if that was something that was shot as a promotional still, or maybe even a cut scene or something. Are you aware of, did they talk about this at all in the documentary? No, they did not. I do know that there, there is an extra on the Blu-ray that says alternate title. And it's, it comes up, tells from the crypt to the title. And then it starts into the movie just like normal. So, there is huh. that. But yeah, I, I did read about the Tales from the Crypt 2 as well uh, being used as a... And you know, that happened in the 60s and 70s. They'd give a movie a different title depending on what market it's going to. I don't know why you'd call it Tales from the Crypt 2, though. I don't either. I love their tagline. All the things that make life worth leaving. <laughs> yeah. 
Nice. I love the artwork on these posters are gorgeous. Whenever I see this artwork for the movies that we talk about specifically, you know how I want to go in and change the words from Vault of Horror or whatever to Monster Kid Radio. Right. I was low. I'm loath to do it with this stuff because the gorgeous artwork and the colors, it's just so perfect. It is. I have a poster for both this and Tales on my wall. Oh, do you? I do. Nice. The, this one in particular is a really nice rolled it wasn't folded it was rolled came from an australian drive-in actually it's where it oh, came from wow and it, it looks great oh wow yeah the, hanging up at the moment i have that one and those two i have from beyond the grave i have creep show and i have the monster club <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> i had to get a spanish <laughs> version of that that that's a really rare poster and really expensive uh, poster i would love to get an American version, but I found a Spanish one that was affordable and, and bought that. Right on. Yeah. You know, this movie, I really dug it. I really did. And I don't know if it's because it's not one that I've seen before and I was so fresh to it, mm-hmm. but I would almost say this is one of my favorite ones that I've watched with you. Excellent. That's good to hear. It's so good. I'm a big fan of it too. Like I said, from the time I first saw it, it was late seventies, early eighties, sometime in there. Like I said, that second story makes me grin like an idiot every time I watch it. I realize <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> it's so great. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. No, I really, I really enjoyed it. This was so much fun. And I mean, I just love talking movies with you anyway. We don't do it enough, but especially when it comes to these anthologies because of your love for them. It's rubbed off on me. I love them as much now. I just adore these things. That's great. That's good to hear. I had heard too that this one was shot. The studio stuff. Um, at, at one point, the um, Jeffrey Davies, one of the two art students, says that it was shot at Twickenham. But then Sabotsky's widow is on the documentary as well, and she says it was shot at Shepperton. She mentions Shepperton, so it may have been done at parts at both. I don't know. Interesting, but very British, definitely. Oh yeah. These movies, like, that's, I haven't had them on the show in forever, but like hearing Roger's story about being in England and like going to the set and talking with Vincent Price and, and that sort of thing. I would love to just go see some of these locations and sets. I know they probably don't exist anymore, but. Yeah, it would be cool. I, for the, and, and we'll talk if we ever do that episode, the asylum one, they visit one of the sets. They visit the asylum set and go through it in that documentary. Oh, I really? Definitely highly recommend this Amicus House of Horrors, a history of England's groundbreaking studio of terror. It's a two disc documentary that I keep mentioning here. It's just, uh, it's got a Peter Cushing interview in it as an extra. It's really good. It really is a good disc set. I need to go back and rewatch it. I haven't watched it in a while, but I need to go back and, and check it out. It's good stuff. Oldies.com put it oh, out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you can get your hands on it pretty cheap. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Yeah. Directed by Derek Pikett, 2012. Practically, what, a little over three hours of, of content about yeah, Amicus? Yeah, two, two disc words. So, yeah, good stuff. It really is. So, amicus, I feel like, doesn't get enough love here on MKR. I need to do more Amicus. Yeah, man. I, I love Amicus. You know, I like Hammer stuff a lot. I mean, the Hammer oh, sure. stuff is great, but Amicus is my jam. It's um, a little sillier. It's a little more uh, comic book. They play up the camp a little bit more, but that's okay. I mean, that's the vibe. That's, that's part of the flavor of it, and that's what I love. I love that you had both things happening. You know, Britain had it going on in the 70s, 60s, 70s. You got me. That's a place to be. I mean, even some of their non-anthology stuff like the skull. I mean, come on. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great movie. That's a great film too. Some of the sto- their anthologies are though where it's at. It really is. So, listeners, I know that we've spoiled the heck out of Vault of Terror horror. Uh, this movie, <laughs> <laughs> right? We've spoiled the Tell heck us out what of this the movie. Vault of the horror crypt. <laughs> <laughs> but if you haven't seen it, I'm sure there's plenty of things that we glossed over uh, that you'll catch that we didn't talk about. I highly recommend this movie, this great, great film. Larry, a lot of so uh, much, man. It's so cool. studio players in it. Some of those guys yeah. that, that you see. Uh, the music, Douglas Gamley did the music. He did the music for Asylum. I was making yep. notes this morning. Tales from the Crypt, From Beyond the Grave, Madhouse, The Beast Must Die, and The Monster Club. <laughs> there you go. Music. So, I mean, he was like Subotsky's guy, you know? Yep. Uh, Roy Ashton makeup doesn't get much oh, better than that. No, you can't, man. Roy Ashton stuff. I've always wondered over the years if Hammer and Amicus ever had like a real rivalry, but it doesn't seem like they did because they kept sharing talent, going back and forth, back and forth. You know, you have Cushing and so many of these things. You got Baker and Freddie Francis direction. You've got uh, the makeup, man. Right. Um, but you know that Subotsky had to somewhere deep down feel like, I'm going to show them for basically, you know, taking his idea for Curse of Frankenstein and and then kicking him and uh, Rosenberg out. You know, they brought the idea to do a Frankenstein story to them and Hammer said, yeah, we're going to do this, but we don't need you. That's the thing about Amicus. You know, the, the people who founded Amicus, if they didn't do what they did, we wouldn't have Hammer the way that it, did, it turned out, I think. Yeah, they definitely are part of the history there for sure. Yeah. Sabotsky was a creative dude, you know, and really into the horror stuff. He lo- you could tell he had a love for it. Hammer, you know, they, they enjoyed what they did, but they still tried to make other non-horror material. Right? They still tried to do the suspense or the terror or even a sci-fi movie. I mean, they tried to do different things. Amicus was like, yeah, this is what we do. Yeah, I mean, they branched out some. They did, they did some other things, too, some other sci-fi stuff later, especially. But but they really seem to embrace it in a way yeah. that I feel like Hammer in the 70s wasn't. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the times were changing for both studios. And it true. was, the, you know, they both ended in the 70s, um, you know, with the the changing sensibilities and everything. It just, that older style of storytelling was, you know, was kind of quaint by that, that by the time Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, you know, the exorcists were coming out. Yeah. Night of the Living Dead kind of changed things up. Yeah. 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 Amic- yeah. I mean, I knew Amicus did sci-fi. I mean, we've got those awesome Doctor Who movies, man. Right. <laughs> Peter Cushing. That's right. <laughs> Which I own on Blu-ray and I don't care. I love them. So. Yes. <laughs> well, I've got. The, this is the only their, Doctor Who that I've watched. <laughs> I've got their B movie. I haven't watched it. I don't think it's, it's supposed to not be great, but I, I did. I think Deadly Bees, is that it? We've yeah. got it on Blu-ray. Um, I need to watch that, and so may do that this week. Well, if you watch it and if, if you, think it's, you think I'd like it, we can talk about it here on the show. Yeah, I will let you know how it is for sure. Okay. So I believe that speaking of Monster Kid Radio, you're approaching number 500 soon, aren't you? Yeah, by the end of the year, I think. That's amazing, dude. Congratulations. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I It blows my mind. Yeah. That I've been podcasting for as long as I have. And I still feel like Monster Kid Radio has not gone on as long as Mail Order Zombie did. But, I mean, it's it's, it's elapsed it at this point. I was going to say, it has to have. There's no... Yeah. Yeah. 
No, it's, so, so it's you're just still saying going. like it felt like forever you were talking about zombies, <laughs> <laughs> and that the time just went by like that for Monster Kid Radio. Maybe that's it. Yeah, let's see. So uh, May of 2013 is when I started MKR. Man, it's great. I remember. I remember first talking to you about it when I was going to get it going. You and a few other people. I was like, ah, I really want to do this. I'm really trying to come up with a name and the whole bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's been a while. Um, but yeah, 500 comes up, I think, by the end of the year. I have no idea what I'm going to do. Yeah. Well, you got some time to start thinking about it. And I got to do something. Celebrate. Got to celebrate. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. And of course, I wouldn't be where I'm at with it without, you know, all the listeners and, and all the special guests that come on. I love when I, th- that we've developed some, like, Monster Kid Radio regulars, you know, like having you on and, and some of the other people that come on more than once. And, and you've kind of established a, a little niche you know like you're the anthology guy you know anthony wendell's my kaiju guy you know and i've got different people that i go to for these things and just having you come back means a lot to me well i appreciate you having me man it's always fun to sit down and chat both before we start recording and and yeah. to talk about these movies as well let's <laughs> say so, yeah listeners to peel the curtain back a little bit larry and i probably chatted for about an hour before i hit record so <laughs> right i think that's about right well, it happens though. You're out there in Tennessee and I'm out here on the West Coast. So it's yeah. the only time we really get to chat too much. So Exactly. Well, I appreciate all of your support over the years. I really do. Uh, from the interview that you did with me for Scary Monsters to just kind of having my back on the show, being on the show, being a sounding board for the show. I mean, all of it. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. You do good work, my friend. So keep rocking. I know you will. <laughs> Larry Underwood is all over the internet. Just look up Dr. Gang Green. Of course, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to his book, Tales from Parts Unknown. And as soon as there's an actual web presence for the new movie, the movie Tales from Parts Unknown, I'll make sure I include a link in the show notes or somewhere on the website so you can find that as well. Now, as I said during that conversation, at least I think I did, I might have cut it out, but maybe I said it, maybe you heard me say that I've seen some of the footage. I have. Now, I've seen one of the short films that did get incorporated into this anthology. It's really good. Plus, I did a little bit of sound work on the intro and some of the uh, in-between bits with Dr. Gain Green, and that was an honor to do. I really hope that they like what I did and they're able to use it. Um, but it was awesome to see Larry doing what he does best, and that's introducing with great enthusiasm really fun horror short stories, just like you would see in something like The Vault of Horror. Larry, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for everything that you've done for Monster Kid Radio over the years. It means a lot. Now, listeners, when we got done recording, Larry and I realized we didn't talk about any other screenings of the movie that are already set. We did record a section that I meant to insert into the conversation that we had, but you know what? I'm just going to play it right here. We'll also be having a second showing at some point um, at the Franklin Drive-In in in Franklin, Tennessee. This will be our local premiere, pretty much, because that's the, I know I said it's in Kentucky, but it's barely over the state line of Tennessee. It's maybe 20 to 30 minutes outside Nashville. I mean, it's really close. And uh, that'll be sometime, we don't have a date exactly yet, but sometime at the end of October. So um, stay tuned. I should have details on that. Very shortly. Right on. And because this is a drive-in screening, as is the world premiere, 
the chances of it being canceled because of what's going on in the world are very slim. These are pretty much locked in, done deals. I can't wait for people to see these things. Yeah, I've seen I mean, this. It could always rain, but rain or well, shine, we'll be showing it. Right on. Sit in your car. That's a, that's a drive-in. Hey, there you go. You know what, listeners? Not to spoil it, but I've seen the very opening of the movie, and there's a little bit of rain. So even if it rains, it's just kind of part of the 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 uh, experience. That's it. That's exactly right. We <laughs> we, we we watched something last year at the drive-in, and it rained, and it was raining on screen. I can't even remember what the movie was, but it was pretty cool. It's like, okay, well, this is kind of appropriate. <laughs> Although I don't want rain. Don't, that, no, no. We're not, we're not saying bring time. it on. We're just That's saying. That's right. We want clear skies. <laughs> That's so cool, man. I can't wait to see the finished product myself. That's, That's Me exciting. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I will take you to a place where my friends foregather. There you will find stories of such blood-curdling terror it will make your toes curl and your hair reach up towards the sky. He likes to take you by surprise. He likes to leave a very special calling card. It was the best blood I have ever tasted. He's giving you a very special invitation. Three stories to shock you. Chill you, thrill you, and make you laugh. Everybody knows about garlic and steaks through the heart. Yes, we all have our cross to bear. I'm just a sucker. Songs by B.A. Robertson. Don't you look down on me. Night. With the strange twist. The pretty things. The viewers. Tell me I'm not going to let you go until you do. We must have our food. But remember, he likes to take you by surprise. You've been invited to the Monster Club. Come at your peril. The most terrifying form of evil is that which lurks within the human mind. This is Asylum of the Incurably Insane. Asylum, the ultimate in horror. Asylum, the prison of madness, where few enter and none return. Asylum, filled with stark raving terror from Robert Block. Author of Psycho. <laughs> See Asylum. You have nothing to lose but your mind. Asylum. From Cinerama Releasing. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. 
say for at least a year now, at least I think it's been a year, we've been running off and on a promo featuring the voice of this man here doing his best, I don't know, maybe it's a Cushing, Peter Cushing impersonation, I'm not sure. A little bit. But he's, prom- <laughs> he's promoting his ongoing story that he's been making available online, Dr. Cushing's Horrors. That's not right at all, is it? Nope. <laughs> what is the name of the book, Steve? It's close. <laughs> Dr. Cushing's Chamber, Chamber of, of Horrors. Yes. See, I'm looking at your website right now under Cushing Horrors, and the banner just says Dr. Ch- right. Cushing's Horrors Classic Monster Stories, which I'm assuming would be the name of like the series if there were going to be f- future books. But let's focus on the first book that's coming out at the right. end of this month. The end of this month being August 2020. Yes. And that is Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors. The overarching thing is CushingHorrors.com, which will take you to the main page. But in theory, there are at least three and probably more like five books that I hope to do in this series. And Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is the first one. And they all have Cushing Horrors in the title. So there you go. This is an ongoing story that you've been making available online at least 40 chapters. looks like 45 chapters, actually, now that I look at yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's long. And an epilogue. <laughs> and a prologue. This is an epic <laughs> for Monster Kids. T- tell me just how many monster types are in this thing. We've got some vampires. We've got some mummies. We have a werewolf. Do psychic twins count as monsters? <laughs> no, they don't really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, a, and a mad sculptor. So we've we've kind of got the uh, mad. He's not a scientist, but uh, we've got a, you know, kind of a, a madman character. We've got a, a couple of uh, different vampires and different forms. Uh, we've got the werewolf, and we've got three mummies. I think that are actually appear, though not all of them necessarily walk in the story. Three mummies appear in the story, too. And it all takes place either in or right next to a house of wax, which is where the sculptor comes in, right? The Chamber of Horrors and the pre-wax works are housed in the Victorian mansion in London. You said he's not really a mad scientist. He's more like a mad curator, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you've ever seen any Vincent Price or any of the famous wax movies, you know what the character is going to be kind of like eventually. Eventually, I mean, not everyone starts off as the monster, but people progress as monsters as the thing goes. You know, you find out motives and jealousies and, you know, past wrongs and all that kind of stuff. And people that may have seemed fairly normal at the start of the book may seem somewhat different at the end. Uh, We've also got a number of mystical, weird artifacts and uh, a guy that's frozen in ice that... (laughs) People may recognize by the end of the story. We'll see. How long has this been in your head, man? You know, that's a really good question. And I am i would say it's probably getting toward five years now. And it took me a long while to write it. And I did release it in a draft form on the internet. And people can still read it that way if they want. But the edited version of something is always better than the uh, the draft version of it. And if you want to see it edited and printed, hold it in your hands as a book or an ebook, then this is the time. And it's, it's pretty exciting. And I'm very excited about it. I'm doing some things differently in this book than I've done in some of the others in terms of you know, format and, and handing some jobs to other people that I might normally have done to my, myself. 
including having a, an amazing cover by Mark Maddox, which I can't remember if I've showed you the whole cover or not yet. Have I, Derek? You have. When will that be made available for people to look at? Like, I don't want to <laughs> accidentally post the cover on monsterkidradio.net, but I also want people to see it because it's pretty, pretty awesome. Believe it or not, one of the things I'm doing this time is I'm doing a cover launch before the book actually comes out and then a major publicity blitz uh, at the end of September and the start of October to try to get the word out for Halloween season, which is this book is an obvious great companion, great thing to be reading during Halloween time for all classic monster kits. But people don't have to wait till Halloween to get it. It's actually going to be coming out at the end of August, which means you want to get it now so that you're on top of it. So when Halloween rolls around and people are like, well, what should I read for Halloween? He's like, well, I just read this great book. Here's where you can get it. I've already read it. I've had it. You know, you've got a month to prepare is what I'm saying. Exactly. I figure the people are, that are following me closely now that have listened to me on, on this show or some of the other monster podcasts I do are going to find it early and be early adopters. And then hopefully you're all enlisted in my campaign to make some real sales for it during October. That's the hope anyway. And that's why we're doing it this way. Well, if you go to the website for Monster Kid Radio, we've got the little book club section. If you click on that, you're going to see a list of all the authors that have appeared on Monster Kid Radio. And obviously Steve's on there. You know, he's been on the show so many times. Of course, he's in the Monster Kid Radio book club. We'll make sure there's a link to that. There will also be a link to where you can pre-order the book as soon as that's made available as well. We've talked a lot about like the business side of it, what we're doing, how you're launching it, that sort of thing. But I want to hear about the story. I want to hear about what the book is about. What can you tell people? All right. Well, the first thing to know that you want to know is that this is a classic monster story. That means it's going to have a bunch of monsters in it, and eventually they're all going to get together and fight, <laughs> right? That's important, that we have some kind of a real Frankenstein meets the Wolfman moment. And I would say that as touchstones, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman in the House series that Universal did, and then generally Hammer. But Hammer didn't really have a lot of monster mashups. So you've got the Universal Monster mashup combined with some of the Hammer sensibilities. It's a little sexier than Universal and that kind of stuff, a little more violent. But still, I was talking with with someone today. It's like, was this a G movie? Is it a PG movie? Is it? And I'd say it's probably kind of PG-13. Maybe, you know, that kind of old M audiences thing from the, from the 1960s and 70s before they had the current rating system. It's kind of a little bit adult, but not crazy adult. So the story is about Dr. Cushing and his twin daughters who spend their lives collecting strange artifacts for their museum, which is Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors. So inside it, they have things like an Iron Maiden that was uh, used to torture people and the noose that Burke and Harry, where uh, Burke was hung by, or his hair, one of the two, I think it's Burke, was hung by. The other one got away on a technicality. Well, because he turned state's evidence. So there's stuff like that. There's a mirror and a bathtub from Elizabeth Bathory. There's a, a Fiji mermaid kind of thing. There's a fragment of the Tunguska meteor. There's a lot of strange stuff in the Chamber of Horrors. And the Chamber of Horrors is located in the basement of an old Victorian mansion in London. The floor just above it is occupied by a classical wax museum, which is run by... Uh, Vincent Dupree, who is, uh, you may recognize some of those names a little bit, 
because there are plenty of tips of the hat and homages in this, as if from Dr. Cushing you couldn't figure that out. So the Cushings are on the in the basement running their thing. They live on the top floor, but their display is in the basement of this mansion. And then you have the, the waxworks on the main floor of the mansion being uh, run by the owner of the building, Vincent Dupree, and his wife, Victoria. It's the uh, 20s and 30s, kind of a general time period between the two wars. And the economy's not so great, and neither of the businesses are doing so great. So the owners start to come up with ideas that may help them grow their businesses. And uh, the Cushings get a new mummy exhibit that comes in. And eventually, they kind of team up a little bit together. But while all this is going on, in the background, there's a lot of supernatural kind of things happening that no one is is quite really focused on, even though the twins that we have in the story are, as I mentioned earlier, I think, are psychic with each other. And they're, they're just 18, so they're young women, so they're seeing boys and that kind of stuff. But mostly they're running this exhibit that's full of just ghoulish and ghastly things, while their dad is out finding more exhibits. For instance, the guy frozen in ice that I think I mentioned earlier as well. Into this little household comes a guy named Paul Shaw, who is a werewolf who is looking for a cure and believes that the cure might be found somewhere within the walls of this mansion. And how Paul the werewolf interacts with the rest of the characters it forms the crux of the story. And I don't want to give too much of, of it away, but it's a pretty cool thing. People that like Hammer or like Universal are almost certain to like this. And it's the longest single piece I've ever written, too. I didn't intend it that way, but it turned out to be a, a real monster epic. That was the word I was looking for, fishing for here, actually. is that Yeah, it's, it's an epic. This is the biggest thing you've ever put down to, to, to paper. Uh, and, and you've written a lot. Right. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm, depending on how you count, I'm... I'm over 50 books and maybe over 80 if you include anthologies and things like that. I've done a lot of writing. <laughs> sure. I love that the project that you've decided to throw the most words down for is a monster rally. I mean, that that says everything that you need to know about Stephen D. Sullivan, right? There. Yeah. You know, I mean, you look at your, where your passions lie. And I, you know, I've had a, a reasonable amount of success doing fantasy stories and that kind of stuff. People know me for the fantasy work I did for D and D and stuff and those kind of things. But they also know that I worked on Chill, that I was one of the people that helped create that. And that's honestly, that's a a um, I can be a bigger fish in that pond, you know, because there's so many fantasy writers out there. Even before a new generation was inspired by the Lord of the Rings movies and, and uh, you know, the Hunger Games and stuff like that. You know, not that the, the Hunger Games more sci-fi, but you, there's a whole crop of people that are working in kind of the traditional fantasy and sci-fi genres. There are just not that many people doing classic monster stories. And one of the things that obviously – well, maybe not obviously – brought this into my mind was when Universal was talking about doing the Dark Universe series. And I thought, well, that's a great idea. And But I 
kind of don't trust that they're going to get it right. <laughs> well, and I think we saw that they didn't get it right. You're, you're absolutely right. They, they didn't really pull off what I think they expected to pull off, uh, both critically and financially. Right. And even though I enjoyed those movies, you know, I enjoyed Dracula Untold and I enjoyed The Mummy. I thought they made some critical errors. Now, when they announced they were going to do this, and maybe even it was even before they announced they were going to do this, I thought that there was a hunger out there for classic monster material that just isn't being served me as much as, you know, you might like Stephen King and Clive Parker and those guys. They're not really doing classic horror. They're doing a more, I don't know, grown-up, edgier version of classic horror. It's, it's a lot less less gothic, at least it wasn't my opinion. And I wanted something that had more monsters. <laughs> in it so i'm definitely giving you three types of monsters maybe four maybe five maybe even six depending upon how you read it how you count it there are some public domain references to things that uh, other people may have created in the past in the book so there's a lot going on there as well as the obvious tips of the hat to you know vincent and cushing and and things like that if you look at the modern horror market which admittedly hasn't really had a huge mainstream presence in bookstores since the 80s, really. Uh, Stephen King and Clive Barker either get put into either the fantasy sci-fi section, if you even have one in a bookstore. If not, they go into the literature section, which always blew my mind because it's not all literature if you're in a bookstore. But anyway, that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> you know, if you if you survive long enough and make enough money, you become literature. I think that's the... Ah, I see. Is that how it works? Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm almost entirely <laughs> certain that's how it works, yes. <laughs> I mean, we keep mentioning Barker, and Barker has a publish anything new in a while either but Stephen King's a machine he keeps putting things out and yeah his stuff's definitely horror and you can see his influences and he makes it quite clear that he grew up on this stuff and he loves this stuff oh yeah he even gave us a nice little plug for chill back in the day we wrote to him and he sent us a little thing that said you can say that I said this about this <laughs> I wish I had that letter, man. <laughs> and if you go back and you read his Dance Macabre which I feel like is almost an essential bit of reading for anybody who loves the stuff the way you and I do. He dismisses some of the stuff a little bit. He's a little bit more dismissive about some of the stuff than, than we are, but you know, he's, he's right there. He's right in the mix. He's a monster kid. Yeah, absolutely. But he doesn't write classic monster rally stuff. I don't right. know of anybody who really does. I know that universal licensed some things out to dark horse several years ago. And even before that, they were doing some things with some other companies, but there really hasn't been a monster rally in book form using the traditional classic monster types. I don't think it's because these things are old hat. I don't think it's because people don't want to read about a vampire or a Frankenstein's monster or a werewolf going at it. I think that there is an audience for that that's being underserved and who better to serve that audience than somebody who loves it as much as we do. Right. Exactly. And, you know, they always say, write what you want to read. Exactly. You know, I mean, aside from Jeff Rovin's Wolfman book, I really can't think of anything that's at all similar to what I'm doing. I'm maybe I'm just not reading enough. But even, even in films, you're not seeing a lot of this kind of stuff. I mean, Mim is kind of more science fiction. You get some with Josh Kennedy. But it's harder to go big on a low-budget movie than it is for a, an author to go big on something like this. So when I want to have all the monsters fight or when I want to have 
a scene of ultimate destruction. That's just a matter of typing it into my computer and then getting it to you so you can put it into your brain and give it the, as big a budget as you think it deserves. So there's really, like you said, there's just not a lot of people doing this. And that, that, that was attractive to me. One, it's something I love deeply. And two, maybe it's a much smaller pond, but in theory, I get to be a much bigger fish. One of the first things <laughs> that you hear whenever you read or, or listen to an interview with an author, nobody was writing the kind of book I wanted to read, so I wrote it myself. And that's exactly what's happening here. You mentioned Jeff Rovin's Return of the Wolfman book. Right. That came out in the late 90s. It's out of print now. I'm seeing it goes for almost $200 on the used market in some places. It's an incredible read. The follow-ups, not so much. But Jeff Rovin also didn't write the follow-ups. And then, like I said, Dark Horse did a licensing deal with Universal at one point as well. And that was 2007-ish. And even in that case, they had the perfect opportunity to do a monster rally. And while the Frankenstein monster did turn up in the Bride of Frankenstein novel, it was a different Frankenstein monster that was portrayed in the Frankenstein novel that they did. So they, they really didn't connect everything. Plus, those books, again, not nearly as good as the Jeff Rovin stuff. No offense to any of the authors who may be listening to Monster Kid Radio, and if you are listening to Monster Kid Radio, get a hold of me because I'd love to interview you for the show. But <laughs> uh, as far as like seeing the monsters go at it, I think the closest that we've had in a long time in mainstream or in mainstream-ish culture would be what's happening with the kaiju films. We're going to see Godzilla versus King Kong. So you do have that monster rally. But again, that is somewhat removed from the horror genre. I know we call them monster movies, but not all kaiju movies are horror movies, you know? So there's really a, a lack of monster rally representation out there. So I'm really excited to see what happens when this comes out, because it's going to change the industry, right? Everybody's going to be like, wow, this is what we need. And then it's going to, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make a, a billion dollars on it and then uh, we'll all have our own little monster topia off on some island somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon will get a hold of you and pick up the rights to turn it into a TV series that they, yeah, well, whatever. why not? Sure. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you know, it's, it's going to take the world by storm. Of course. And, that, and that's why, you know, I've done some different things with this. You know, I mentioned very briefly, got Mark Maddox, the great artist to do a terrific cover for this. I think this is something that there's a demand for out there that is not being filled by anything else. And I think people would enjoy it. You know, in the same sense that when I wrote my kaiju novel, I don't think there was a lot of that out there. And I still don't think there's a lot of it out there that reflects the kind of stuff we all love. There are a lot of people that maybe are updating it and making it edgier or whatever, you know, and I'm not saying that this isn't edgy in places, but when you want to see a classic monster rally, you don't always want to maybe see Alien versus Predator or the Werewolf versus Vampire series and that kind of stuff. Maybe that kind of level of, of carnage and violence is not what you're looking for. Maybe you're looking for something that has a little more heart, a little more character in some ways. Not that I don't like Underworld. I, you know, I like Underworld. I, I like uh, Resident Evil. There's a lot of kind of more modern horror that I really enjoy, but that's not what this is. Which is not to say you might not enjoy it if you enjoy those things. Certainly if you like werewolves and you like vampires, you may dig this. There may be something something here that is old, something new, something borrowed, and, and who knows, maybe even something blue. So hopefully we're hitting a lot of bases. We'll see. We'll see what people think. 
couple of times you've mentioned chill. Now, I know what it is because chill has a very, right. very big part of my, my heart. But Chill was a role-playing game put out by Paysetter Games back in the day. Uh, it has gone through several editions since then, at least two more that I'm aware of. But the original Chill role-playing game was one of the very first horror role-playing games on the market, and you were involved with that. And I want to bring that up because you're doing a role-playing game thing with... Dr. Fishing. I am, which is another thing that I've never done before. Yeah, I was one of the people that started Paysetter. Back in uh, about 1984, along with Mark Agers, Troy Denning, Andrea Hayday, and a number of other really talented people. And our initial release was Chill, the classic horror role-playing game. So it's hard to say, yeah, if you like Chill, you'll like this. If you like the original Chill, you're going to totally dig this. Because the original Chill was inspired by Hammer and Universal. And it had kind of a sly edge to it and that kind of stuff. But it was... A lot of things that, that people kind of take for granted now that a horror role-playing game maybe should be. At the time, one of the reasons we did it was, again, a market thing where we're like, well, we'd like to do some games, role-playing games that no one's ever done before and what has been done in horror. And at that point, the only thing that had been done in horror was Call of Cthulhu, which I love as a game, which we used, you know, when I worked at TSR, we had a Call of Cthulhu <laughs> campaign running a, a couple of nights a week at, at one point which was a just a blast but call of cthulhu is very different from classic universal or classic hammer so i was one of the people that helped create the original chill i was the art director but all of us we were a t very tight-knit group so all of us helped develop the story and the and the the way the game would work and we chosen it as i said because it was something no one else was doing. And that proved really, really successful. And there were some things we did with the game that other people weren't doing. There was a market there. We had uh, some great art by the late, great Jim Holloway, who just passed away this year. And in some ways, Dr. Christian Chamber of Horrors is the same thing in that it's addressing a market need, at least as I perceive it. As you said earlier, you find something, you write something that you'd like to read and that you're not finding anywhere else. So that's what I've done with this. And that's, you know, that's what I've tried to do with a lot of the stuff that I write, uh, including the Daikaiju Attack and uh, the Tournament of Death and, uh, you know, upcoming Frost Arrow and the, the Werewolf book that I'm going to be working on very soon, too, that's not related to Dr. Cushing. Well, I'm really excited to see what happens with this. This is coming out. Uh, the launch is expected for August 30th, which should be either right before or right after you hear this on the podcast. So head over to stsullivan.com. I'm sure he's going to have links all over the place to pick this up as an ebook, as a print edition or undead tree edition. It will be available for you to get. You won't be able to miss it. Of course, I'll make sure there are links in the show notes as well. That'll go through my Amazon affiliate link to help get me a buck or two while we're getting Steve even more bucks or two through this whole process. I'm really excited to see what happens with the book. I've seen the Mark Maddox illustration, ladies and gentlemen, and if it hasn't been revealed yet, stay tuned. If it has been revealed, you know what I'm talking about. This cover looks amazing, and Mark Maddox is the Rondo Award-winning artist who has done 
incredible magazine covers, and he's been doing a lot for Scream Factory as well, putting out their Blu-rays and DVDs. He's doing the cover art for a lot of those. He is an incredible artist whose work is almost as good as Steve's writing. (laughs) Yeah, I like to hear that. That's that's a good one. You like that? You like that? Yeah. And the book will be out in time for Labor Day weekend for those of you living in the U.S. So if you're looking for something to read over the long weekend or looking for something to read on the beach, socially distant, and that kind of stuff, it's right there for you, man. In print and Kindle form, other ebooks will come later after the exclusive period. So, And that'll be part of the Kindle Unlimited release? Is that why you're doing it that way? Yeah, they have a special Kindle thing where you sign exclusively for them and they give you some kind of perks, which another thing I've never done before. So trying it out, see how it works. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate you guys and gals sticking around to the very end of the episode so you can hear about what's coming up next. What is next? Excellent question. And I have answers. So, first of all, we have the return of a segment, sort of, that's been missing on the show for a little while. And, you know, there's been a couple of reasons why it hasn't been on the show. But I'm extremely happy to say that Dr. Tongue is coming back. Now, he's tweaking the segment format a little bit. It's not going to be every other week. But Dr. Tongue will be here next week with a brand new segment. And I can't wait for you guys and gals to hear it. Also... How many times do I talk about Ultraman here on the show? How many times do I tell you guys and gals I wish I could do something with Ultraman here on the show? I just don't have time, and I have no idea how I'd even put something together. Fortunately, a listener of the show, a friend of the show, a fellow podcaster, is going to take it on for us. Starting next week, you're going to hear Mark Madsky from the Monster Study Group giving us his beta capsule reviews of All things Ultraman. I think that's what he called the segment. It's a really short piece, and he's going to be doing this episode by episode, starting with the very first episode of Ultra Q. So that's coming up next week, and I can't wait for that to become a regular part of Monster Kid Radio. I love what Mark does, and when he offered to do this, man, I jumped at it. Well, as quickly as I could. I think I kind of made him wait by email a few days. But, man, as soon as we started talking about it, I got excited. Mark, thank you. And Dr. Tongue, can't wait to have you back, man. And Kenny... You're still knocking it out of the park, my brother. Really appreciate it, man. Now, those are the segments, but what's the bulk of the show? What's the meat of Monster Kid Radio, says the vegetarian? What's really happening in the show next week? I am honored and excited to tell you that Monster Kid Hall of Famer David J. Scal will be here next week. You know those Universal Monster movies that we love so much, the DVDs and the Blu-rays that we watch over and over and over again? Those documentaries that you see on those DVDs and Blu-rays? They were produced by him. You know that Spanish-language version of Dracula? I don't think we'd have that in the pop culture the way we do. Well, what counts for pop culture for us monster kids the way we do, if not for David J. Scal. He's done so much, written so many cool books, and he's got a new one coming out called Fright Favorites, 31 Movies to Haunt Your Halloween and Beyond. It's going to be available for sale September 1st. So... If you want to get ahead, you can go ahead and pick up the book and then make sure you're back here on September 3rd for my interview with the David J. Scal. Honored that he was willing to be part of the show. Super excited to share that conversation with you. And I hope I can have him back on the show down the line. But that's 
kind of getting ahead of ourselves. So that's coming up. Make sure you come back here in seven days. We're going to talk about all this online through our Twitter page and our Facebook page and our Facebook group. Just look up Monster Kid Radio on your various social media outlets and you're going to find us. Or you can find us at monsterkidradio.net where you're going to find links to everything that we talked about here on the show, our contact information, links to the various books that we've talked about here on the show, movies we've talked about here on the show. They're Amazon affiliate links, so you're helping Monster Kid Radio out by going through those links if you're going to buy these items and add them to your physical media collection. Everything you need to know about subscribing to the show is over there as well, so tell your friends. We need more listeners. We want more people to be part of the Monster Kid Radio party. Party? How about a watch party? How about this Saturday's watch party? The Monster Kid Movie Club this Saturday, starting at 11 a.m. Pacific. We're going to be starting with a pre-show, a documentary of some sort, something. I'm not really sure yet. But then at noon-ish Pacific, we start the movies. And we have at least four movies lined up for you guys and gals this Saturday, completely free for you to watch. We have Voodoo Man. We have Strangler of the Swamp. And then we've got an Arch Hall Jr. double feature. Ega, the name written in blood, and The Sadist. I know, those two movies are completely different, but it's Arch Hall, doing what Arch Hall does best, and I can't wait to share those movies with everybody. So come to MonsterKidMovie.club on Saturday. Everything starts at 11 a.m. Pacific, but it's going to be going all day long, and like I said, it's totally free, and... There's a live chat going through the entire screening, so get to chat it up with your fellow monster kids. So it's going to be a good time. I'm looking forward to it. And before I go, this was inspired by some screenings that we did in the Monster Kid Movie Club. I was showing a serial, the serial being The Phantom Creeps, and I got inspired by that film, by that serial, and wanted to make some merchandise based on it. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash D-R-Z-O-R-B-A, that's tinyurl.com slash Dr. Zorba, you'll be taken to our tea public shop where you can pick up your very own... <laughs> Dr. Alex Zorba's Mail Order Madness t-shirt, magnet, sticker, notebook. You can get it on a number of different items. Just head over there, check it out, because this is a limited edition item. At the end of the month, it goes offline, and you won't see it again for quite some time, if ever. So if you want to get your hands on this t-shirt, you know where you need to go. Plus, depending on when you hear this and you go over to the website, Public is running a sale right now, up to 35% off site-wide. T-shirts start at $13, and the T-shirt sizes go up to 5X. Now, the larger sizes cost a little bit more, you know, more fabric, but still, you don't want to miss out. Of course, there will be a link in the show notes, and this is really just going to go to the Tee Public shop that Monster Kid Radio has set up. So if you go to Tee Public and just look up Monster Kid Radio, well, you'll find it. Thanks for everybody's support. I can't wait to have you back here next week with David J. Scal and all the other new content we've got lined up. Until then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Calling Dr. Gang Green. That's from the album Themes from an Imaginary Spook Show from the Gino Royd Experience, copyright 2015. They gave us permission to play their music here on the show, and we thank you very much for supporting the show in that way. My name's Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Well,
eyes on 